You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Hey, we got rules and regulations. Yes, we call them R&R, rules and regulations on 21st Century Radio. So sit up straight, make sure your tie is straight, shine your shoes, and I'm certain all of you have a good haircut by now. Here's the three rules and regulations. Humans are not machines. They have an immortal component. Two, we are not alone in the universe, and we never have been. Three, what we do to the planet, we do to ourselves. Now, I do realize how radical these rules and regulations are, but, you know, that's life. Things things get kind of radical at times. Well, tonight's book is Transcending the Speed of Light, Consciousness, Quantum Physics, and the Fifth Dimension, published by my publisher, Inner Traditions International, by Dr. Mark Cipher, Ph.D., with a foreword by my uh, doctoral thesis dude, Dr. Stanley Krippner, Uncle Stan, as we know them. And the space-time continuum of scientists generally ignores the realm of the mind, though phenomena such as imaginary numbers used by Einstein to combine space with time are concepts that only exist in the mind. Dr. Mark Seifer contends that the inadequacy of four-dimensional models to account for our experience of mental phenomena points to the consciousness of the mind as a higher organizing principle, a fifth dimension where thoughts are as real and quantifiable as our familiar physical world. He shows that because thought enables us to move backward and forward through time, reflecting on the past and making plans for the future, that this fifth dimension of mind breaks the laws. Breaks the laws. It's a mind breaker. Of, <laughs> it doesn't break our laws, but I guess it breaks other people's laws. Laws of Breaks the laws of relativity, thereby transcending the speed of light. His extensive study of this fifth dimension ranges from relativity and the ether theory to precognition, telepathy, and synchronicity, all from the perspective of the conscious universe. Dr. Mark Seifer, Ph.D., teaches psychology at Roger Williams University. He has studied under Bruno Bettelheim, my goodness gracious, Herbert Meltzer, and Dr. Stanley Krippner, and is the author of several books, including Inward Journey from Freud to Gurdjieff, and the acclaimed wizard, The Life and Times in Nikola Tesla, and he lives in the wonderful state of Rhode Island. And by the way, Dr. Seifer joined Zahara Hieronymus over a decade ago on the bestest, as we say in Balmer, the bestest book ever published on one of our heroes, Nikola Tesla, Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. Welcome to 21st Century Radio. How are you, Mark? Good. How are you doing, Bob? Well, about a B, B plus. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, we'll get, the life gets t- tough every now and then. Um, by the way, Perhaps you can answer this question I've asked a hundred times, and I've forgotten who it is. Who of the Greek philosophers said, all things are vibrations? You know, one of them that said that was Hobbes. There's nothing but matter and motion. And I thought that was a brilliant statement by Hobbes, and I think it's about the 1500s. Well, that was so hum- he's reducing everything down to matter and motion. Mm-hmm. But you can't recall a Greek philosopher. I don't think it was Anaximander or Anaximendes or, or Heraclitus or whatever. I just can't recall who that dude was. Pythagoras? Could be. Of course, I think he also said all things are numbers. Uh, now, you note that this book 
is the record of a quest that began in the early 70s and yet is not over. What's this quest? I really want to know what consciousness is and, and also what higher consciousness is. I think one of the problems that I've found with mainstream psychology is that um, a lot of it, I think it's, it's actually boring. I mean, I've read tons of psych journals, and a lot of it is not set up how to reach a higher state of consciousness. Even Freud stuff, I mean, I have a book that goes into tremendous depth on Freud, but he, he tells you how to find more and more about yourself, but not how to live a more productive life, I don't think. I mean, Woody Allen's been in analysis forever, you know, it's, it's, it's that idea. <laughs> so that led me to Gurdjieff's thinking, and I, and I think Gurdjieff, actually, he's very, he's very practical and pragmatic. He really links higher states of consciousness to creative doing, just going out and, and do your own thing, that, that the very act of doing something, working in you know, part of the work, that's a way to achieve higher consciousness. Uh, and also the simple idea to be master of your own ship. One thing I've never understood uh, is why people uh, smoke cigarettes and why they can't quit. I mean, I know I have habits that I wish I could stop too, but I mean, I, I'd like to believe that I could that I could be in control of my life. And uh, I think all of that is linked. So the quest really is to figure out what is consciousness and at the same time, what is the high state and what is what are the higher states of consciousness. Now, you, you mentioned Gurdjieff, and, and of course the... On page 26, you say something I think is enormously important today. You say, why, well, why do you believe the new generation is being robbed? Well, I think there I'm, I'm talking about the bookstores. Yeah, that's correct, yes. Uh, the, the, in the, uh, most of, in, uh, especially in the New Age bookstores, but why do you believe that the uh, readers are being robbed? Well, I'm, you know, a, a kid of the late 60s, the early 70s, I um, about five years younger than you, were born in 1948. Um, and when I was a kid, you know, right out of school, you could go into a bookstore and you could roam the bookstore and you could find books on Lapsang Romper or Gurdjieff or Wilhelm Reich or Spensky. You can't do that now. As giant as Barnes & Noble and Borders are, they really don't have a lot of stuff. And it's, it's amazing. I know a few authors, uh, some of my favorite authors, you can't find them in the bookstores. Um, and I think it's unbelievable. At the same time, uh, have you ever seen a decent book on astrology in a bookstore? Oh, not since uh, Dane Rudger stopped publishing, no. Yeah. I mean, it's been 20, 30 years. They have, all they have is junk in there. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think it's, uh, you know, really terrible. I'll tell you, symptomatic of this is a story about uh, with my wife just the other day. She was uh, uh, making a pie, and she had a, a, a mixer. She wasn't happy with the mixer. She was going to get a... Cousinart mixer because it had five speeds and she needed the low speed. So we put it, it had, you know, we put it on low and it zipped around at five miles an hour, at, you know, 50 miles an hour and spit uh, pie stuff all over the all over the room. Cousinart <laughs> uh, doesn't have a slow speed on the, on their on their mixers. Something's changed in our society. You know, it's a five-speed mixer. We've lost a lot. We think that we're advancing, but in many ways we've become a lot more conservative, a lot less bold. Um, and I think that uh, you know, I love bookstores. I love to roam in bookstores, but there's so many things that you you can't find a decent book on Gurdjieff. You can't find a decent book on parapsychology. Uh, J.B. Ryan, I heard you mention uh, Ryan's daughter. Um, you know, when we were you know younger, you know, you remember. Um, Edgar Mitchell and John White had that great book, Psychic Exploration. Oh yeah, that should still be in print. I mean, that—that's you know, um, you know, a, a 
uh, a biography of Truman, Be There Forever or, or John Adams, but why not Psychic Explorations, which is an amazing book, which really uh, every young person should be able to read a book like that. I agree with you. There is so much just plain crap out there. And that's one of the important things about your work. You reintroduce a number of these individuals to us, which we'll touch on a little later on. Now, but how did you get interested in parapsychology? Um, kicking and screaming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was uh, I was in the, at the University of Chicago, and as you mentioned, one of my teachers, maybe the best teacher I've ever had, was Bruno Bettelheim, and he really got me into Freud. And I got a book, uh, a thousand-page book on Freud. Uh, you know, his collected works, I and mean, he's written more than that, but this was a compact collected works. And I really studied it, and I was very intrigued. He, his, you know, they talk about Freud and sex, but really, you could, you could, I could talk for an hour about Freud and never mention sex. I mean, he really discusses the depths of the unconscious, and he really explains the mechanism of how it works. And that got me into Carl Jung. I knew very little about Carl Jung. In those days, this was around 1972-73, and I ordered it, of course, on Carl Jung, and I was astounded at the idea of the collective unconscious, and that brought me to Frederick Myers. Uh, he wrote a book, Human Personality and Its Survival of Bodily Death. That's the title of the book, yep. um, and he talks about the universal mind. Now, he was talking about the universal mind in 1901. Uh, if you read Carl Jung's autobiography, he doesn't come up with the collective unconscious till about 1915. He, he has inklings around 1909. But there was there was a tons of stuff on the universal mind or the collective unconscious before Carl Jung. And when you really get into it, the idea basically is that a deeper uh, uh, level of uh, vibration or frequency, all minds are interconnected, all humans are interconnected, and, and even all animals and all of life. But uh, and you can see it, you know, telepathy between twins and that kind of thing. So what happened in about 1972-73, I started to study J.B. Ryan's stuff, and I, and I realized that it has been proven that we have telepathic abilities. And I did these simple experiments with just, you know, a deck of cards. You know, you just have a, a friend, and you hold it up, and he just has to cast clubs, hearts, spades, and, and diamonds. And he starts getting three, four, five in a row, and, and you get the hair on your, your arms start to stand up because you know you're in sync, and you know what's happening. Um, so what happened at that time, I really had my consensus reality shattered. I had a day at, on, in campus, in my room, where I really thought, in a sense, that I'd lost my mind. Because everything that I thought was true about the world was no longer true. I was learning that we, we do indeed have telepathic abilities. I was reading about the out-of-body experiences and serious experiments where they'd put a number high up on a, on a, on a high wall and there's no way someone could peek because his head couldn't hit the wall, and he'd be able to tell you what was on the number. Ingo Swan was doing, you know, remote viewing, um, out-of-body experiences, and also a lot of stuff on life after death. There's a lot of evidence for life after death if you really want to study it. Mm -hmm. I would recommend the, the book by Rosemary Brown, Unfinished Symphonies, uh, for starters. But that's what happened. I just I had a whole different view of uh, what reality really was, and there was a moment there, the world that I thought was real was no longer real, and, and it was a scary moment. And I remember I was interviewing uh, Andrea Puharic for a, a magazine article, and I asked him about that. I mean, he had a very far-out life, and he basically said, 
don't feel the need to decide for sure that this is right and this is wrong. You know, allow for elements of ambiguity, tolerance for ambiguity. And, and he said life was a learning curve. And, you know, it, it removed a big weight from my mind because I didn't have to decide for sure that this had to be so and that had to be so. It was more just simply being open to all the possibilities uh, of uh, what we could do mentally. And so that, that's really how the quest began. Then I came back to Rhode Island, and I taught a course on parapsychology. Uh, I, I taught parapsychology for 15 years at Providence College, which really you know, uh, got me deeply into that, uh, that field. When did uh, Nikola Tesla enter your life? He entered my life in 1976. I was working with a fellow by the name of Howard Smuckler. Oh. I was teaching a course on parapsychology, and he was teaching a course on UFOs uh, here in Rhode Island and also at the New School. He was going back and forth. And one day he came back from New York, and he said, Mark, I am the editor now of two magazines, ESP Magazine and Ancient Astronauts. I said, how did you do it? He said, I walked into a, a bookstore, and I saw a book on French poodles. He said, I saw another book on rifles. You know, I saw you know, another book on motorcycles. And it was all done by countrywide publications. So he went and knocked on the guy's door. And the guy says, I don't care what you do. He said, you could, put, you could do a book on doorknobs as long as you can sell 20,000 copies a month. So he said, can I do one on ESP and one on ancient astronauts? And so I was writing articles under like five different names because we were just getting started. And, um, and I was writing a bunch of books. And I was writing, I mean, articles. And I was writing an article on Lap Sangarampa, um, who I had discovered uh, a couple of years earlier. I just found one book. It was called The Third Eye. And it was a picture guy looked like Orson Welles with a, with a glass eye in his forehead. And it turned out it was the, an autobiography of a Tibetan Lama. You don't find out to the third book that he's a British guy and that he's, in a sense, dead and that a Tibetan Lama has taken over his body. He's written about 14 books, but I didn't know this. And so I was writing a, an article, and by this time I knew it, on Lapsang Rampa for ancient astronauts. And I came across a book which talked about avatars. And one theory about an avatar, which is an enlightened being, the theory is there's five of them on the planet at every time, you know, on the Earth at any moment in time. I mean, it's just a theory. It's a nice theory, but I would say the Dalai Lama would certainly, you know, be an enlightened being and would, would fit that uh, bill. And so they, the book had a number of avatars. One was Lapsang Rampa, one was Jesus Christ, and another was this guy who came from the planet uh, Venus who landed on the Earth and gave us all these inventions, and his name was Tesla. I'd never heard the name before, and I thought, you know, it was a great myth. And I was in the New York Public Library, so I, I found out he actually did live, and he actually had patents in high-frequency currents, and that was it. I mean, once I found out this guy was real, I then made him the focus of my doctoral dissertation, and I wanted to find out how a guy so important uh, could have uh, been plucked from the history books so that we, we didn't know who he was. Um, so that's really how it started. Well, uh, I'd like to ask you more about him. We'll we'll get, return to him, and oh, later on in the hour, uh, we're going to take our first break. Mark, the book is "Transcending the Speed of Light: Consciousness, Quantum Physics, and the Fifth Dimension." This show should be six hours to cover this work. This is an extraordinary book. It's published by Inner Traditions. Hello, this is Ingo Swan, the author of Penetration the question of extraterrestrial and human telepathy. And you're listening to the wonderful 21st Century Radio, 
with the amazing Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Our guest is Dr. Mark Seifer, Transcending the Speed of Light, Consciousness, Quantum Physics, and the Fifth Dimension, Inner Traditions. Go to markseifer.com or you can actually click on the link on 21stCenturyRadio.com. Mark, um, the anthropic principle refers to human beings and, and suggests that there is a link between the overall design of the universal and the human mind. What can you share with us about that link? It's complicated. Part of it is that the, the, the uh, universe had to expand at a particular rate. Uh, the amount of uh, uh, energy ratio was 1.37, which is um, this, uh, it's called Sommerfeld's number. 1.37 shows up in so many different ways. So the expansion rate of the universe is, is at a, has a rate of 1.37, and also the uh, uh, mathematical probability that a, an electron would absorb a photon is 1.37. And they don't know why it's the same number for the structure of an atom and also the expansion rate of the universe. There's no physical reason that physicists can see why the two numbers should be linked, but obviously they are linked because it's the same number. So it's a coincidence. And had the had the expansion rate been slightly different, the argument is that life could not have evolved. At the same time, the universe is expanding and evolving in such a way that it ends up uh, producing humans, which are aware of the universe. So one so one aspect of the anthropic principle is that the universe has been set up so that entities would evolve, which could observe the very process of the universe and be self-aware. And that's a lot of what it is. It's a cosmological coincidence is what, it, is what it is. Well, also on page three, you note that in physics, you state that there are key numerical coincidences, coincidences connecting the microcosmic world and the macrocosmic world, um, a mathematical link between certain ratios in both, both uh, atomic and galactic structures. And you noted 1.37. Are there any other numbers uh, similar to that, Mark? Well, that, that's the main one that I discussed. Another number which is very important is the number four, which is uh, the tetragrammaton, or the fourfold nature of God. In Hebrew, YHVH is the name of God. It's four letters. But it's interesting. It has a repeating element, YHVH. So there's a link between uh, Judaism and Christianity. YHV, you can see, is a triangle. And where would, the, where would the H be, the fourth component? Um, there's a fellow by the name of Mani Sadu, and he wrote a book on the tarot. Um, he, what he would do is he'd, he'd put a triangle with a dot in the center. So YHV would be Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and then the final H would be the dot in the center. In other words, Father, Son, Holy Ghost as a gestalt, as a totality, would be the fourth element. So three, the Trinity, becomes four, the tetragrammaton, or the fourfold nature of God. Um, and then this is linked in Ezekiel. You know, you have the four animals, which are lion, bear, eagle, and man. And if you combine those four, you know, in, in astrology, fire, earth, air, and water, you have the sphinx. So the sphinx is five. So four plus one is five. So lion, bear, eagle, and man, as a totality, as a gestalt, is number five, the sphinx, which is symbolized in our hand by the four fingers plus the thumb. 
So if you have four plus one, uh, the four fingers plus the thumb, but the four equals the one um, because the thumb is equivalent to all the four fingers. So every number is sacred, um, but I would say another major number would be four, uh, the, the fourfold nature of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in terms of synchronicity, could you define it for us, please? Synchronicity is a meaningful coincidence, and I had an amazing one yesterday, and I'll just uh, tell you about it because it's amazing. It really is amazing. Um, I really didn't want to see the dark night. I don't. I don't like the, the all the horror and the, and the, the madness of it all. But we have HBO, and it was on for the you know, the premiere was on last night, and uh, so we watched it. Uh, coincidentally. I have been working 10 years on a novel. I wrote a novel called Starrett's Encounter, which is kind of a takeoff on Uri Geller and uh, the Russians and parapsychology. And I used the same characters, and it took me 10 years to complete this new novel, which is called Doppelganger, which is about a double, a guy who doesn't realize he has a twin out there. And there's a lot more to the story. But in any event, it, it took me 10 literally years to finish this book, and I literally went to Kinko's yesterday. And for the first time ever, I even told the, the girl there, I said, this is a 10-year process. I'm finally getting to see this whole thing at, at once. So I have the book yesterday, and we're watching The Dark Knight last night. So one of the bad guys in, in, the, in the movie, The Dark Knight, his name is Maroney. My bad guy in my book, the name is Maroney. Whoa. Um, and if you've seen the film, there's a whole thing with cell phones where, where he creates like a, uh, uh, an echo chamber. He's able to look into buildings and stuff. I use cell phones to create a similar kind of thing in my book. I mean, it was just, you know, I used cell phones collectively to, to create a collective unit, and it was done in the movie, and the bad guy had the same name, so I'm going to change the name. Now, here's there's something in my book called The Kicker. The Kicker is an extra synchronicity. If you don't think this is a real synchronicity, here's one more just, you know, to really put it into, into perspective. The guy who made the movie, Christopher Nolan, made The Prestige, which is about Tesla. So, oh. Oh. so the guy who makes this movie, the only guy who's ever made a movie about Tesla in, in modern times, you know, it's a major motion picture, is a guy, his next screenplay, I have the same name as the bad guy and, and another key component in there. And it just blew my mind last night. So there's synchronicity, simply a meaningful coincidence. What do you think, what do you think that might mean to this book that you've just written? I think we're on a similar wavelength. Um, like an idea uh, whose time has come? I think, yeah, I think people are on similar wavelength. You know, I was negotiating with, with Nolan. I mean, it was I, he could have done the Tesla movie or he could have made Prestige, and he, he went in the other direction. Um, I never actually talked to him, but I talked to his people. And uh, we had gotten a little bit you know, farther along the way on that. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure the total meaning of it. I'll tell you another one, just to tell you how astounding it can be. I, this was a number of years ago. You can tell by the numbers. I went to a grocery store, and I bought butter, milk, and eggs. And it came to $2, right on the button. I reached into my pocket, and I pulled out a $2 bill I didn't know was in there. And the night before, I had dreamt about a $2 bill. Now, I don't know the whole meaning of this, but I'll tell you how I got the $2 bill. I had borrowed $3 from my girlfriend. She's now my wife. And, you know, we used to, we would pay each other back. It was no big deal. So she gave me a handful of bills, and I stuck in my pocket. I wasn't going to count it out. 
So for fun, she had given me a $2 bill and a $1 bill. I hadn't even seen a $2 bill in a million years. So, you know, so I go into the grocery store. The bill came to exactly $2. I had dreamt about $2 bill the night before. And and I reach into my pocket. I pull out a $2 bill. It was It just totally blew my mind. I don't know all the meaning to it, but I think one of the things that Carl Jung is trying to say is that the mental world, we see a connection to physical events, you know, like uh, the China Syndrome and Three Mile Island happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. We see the connection between these two events, and, and so it, it, it shows that the mental real world has a fundamental reality that, that, that does uh, interact with the physical world. Well, if we had, we had a couple more hours, we could cover a number of th- questions that, that you noted on telepathy, dream telepathy, examples of precognition, and the difference between prediction and uh, precognition, etc. But i got to tell you, there is so much important information that none of the other guests that we've ever had on 21st Century Radio could handle the kind of questions that you can. Um, and, and so I'm trying to, I'm really taking advantage of that fact, because of this book is an extraordinary book. Uh, one of these, uh, the, one of the questions, obviously, we need to get to desperately is consciousness. Mm-hmm. Would you define that for us, please? What is consciousness? I think consciousness is awareness, and there are different levels of awareness. And I always, I remember as a kid playing with magnets. You played with magnets, right? You, you ever yeah, sure. Bounce one magnet against the other. Use the repelling force. To, push it against the, you know, across the table. I used to try to make a pin stand up on its end because so I said in the weight of the pin, if you could get the magnet right above it, it would start to hover a little bit. If you, if you got a little bit too close, the, the pin would jump up, and if you could do it perfectly, you could get the pin to stand on its end. So as a kid, it always occurred to me that magnets have a certain form of basic awareness. Electrons don't like other electrons, and they like protons. That is really the basis of what I'm trying to say in this book. It's a very simple idea, and that is that consciousness is uh, built into the structure of matter. The very fact that the periodic table of elements exists is proof that there's order to the universe. And the big question is, can you have order to the universe without some sentient entity ordering it? Every scientist secretly believes that that there are laws to the universe, and in the the question is, can you have laws without a lawmaker? And I am arguing that, that you cannot have that. You must have a lawmaker. So essentially, I believe in, in, some, in a God, in some type of highly intelligent creative force who started all this. And if you start from that premise, you uncover all these amazing things. Pythagoras, which you mentioned before, saw the universe as uh, built on numbers, harmony, uh, music. And based upon that principle, Kepler... Uh, discovered the uh, planetary laws of motion, you know, P squared over D cubed. The time it takes for a planet to circle the sun squared over the distance from the planet to the sun cubed is the same for every planet. So, for instance, the Earth takes 365 days squared over 93 million miles cubed. You'll come up with a ratio. That's the same for Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. It's the same thing. Now, the only way that they discovered that was their intrinsic belief that the universe was built on, on orderly principles. So what I'm trying to do is make a very strong case to explain how human consciousness could evolve, and it starts from the very premise that consciousness is imbued in the structure of matter. And that's really uh, the fundamental basis, I think, of the book. A very important basis. 
as far as I'm concerned. You know, we need to get to a number of things that would actually take much longer than we ever had. But, um, so I'm going to be pushing real hard. So I want to take our break right now, producer. Is that okay? So we can award a copy of this book. And when we return, uh, my the best friend at my wedding with Zahara and I was Christopher Bird. Oh, yeah. And we had we just had the most wonderful times here with Peter, him and Peter Tompkins and of course Pooh Harris sometimes and then some and a whole group of other individuals. But he also introduced me to the uh, Royal Rife microscope, which I we thought was just extraordinary and we didn't think there would be any problem for it getting recognition and being used. Well, of course I was wrong. But when we come back, would you please talk to us a little bit about Royal Rife and his microscope and its uh, possible assistance with cancer. Our guest is Dr. Mark Seifer, transcending the speed of light, consciousness, quantum physics, and the fifth dimension. We need to get to those too. Published by our dear friends at Inner Traditions, MarkSeifer.com. Hello, this is Uri Geller, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Our guest, of course, is Dr. Mark Seifer. The book is Transcending the Speed of Light, Consciousness, Quantum Physics, and the Fifth Dimension, published by Inner Traditions. And go to markseifer.com or 21stCenturyRadio.com. But make sure you get at least one copy of this book. And you'll you'll like it even more than I do. Mark, um, I noted, of course... The best friend of our friend, uh, Chris, our wedding, that is Chris Bird, who we had such a wonderful time with for about 20 years. Um, he introduced us to the work of Royal, the Royal Rife Microscope. Why do you believe it is a possible cure for cancer? Um, because, uh, first of all, the, my book does discuss uh, how matter is constructed. And molecules are held together by sharing photons, light particles. In other words, we are held together by light. That's very important to understanding why Rife's experiments and work is so important. What Rife was trying to do, he was trying to look at viruses without killing them. Um, when we were in science, you know, in ninth grade or whatever, you'd look in a microscope, they would stain cells to look at them. Um, so in order to look at a virus with an electron microscope, you have to kill it. And he felt you're losing a lot because you're looking at a dead organism. So he wanted to look at a living organism. So he had worked with Zeiss Optics, and he had created a, a microscope that had, I think, 6,000 parts to it. And he, with that, he could magnify 60,000 times. But in order to focus the, on this very, very small virus, he had to bombard the virus with different frequencies of light to find the resonant frequency of the virus, and different viruses would have different resonant frequencies. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners probably remember the Memorex commercial and, and Ella Fitzgerald, and when she would hit the uh, right vibration, the wine glass would, would break apart. So when she hits the resonant frequency, she's in tune with that, and then it starts to vibrate a lot, and then it breaks apart. Well, the same principle he's using, he's bombarding the viruses with light to try and look at them. So when he hits the resonant frequency, the viruses start to illuminate, and he could look at them. And then he had an epiphany. He realized if I continued to bombard the, uh, the virus with that same frequency, I will break apart the bonds that are holding the virus together, which is the, the cure for cancer. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's absolutely fundamental. There is, uh, and my argument is, is that um, Brown, I'm right by Brown University. You know, five or six major universities. Let them build the microscope. Let them do experiments with mice, et cetera. But we really should be doing these experiments because uh, I can't see anything wrong with it. it, it to me, it, it, it seems fundamental. It seems like it has to be the cure, uh, one of the you know cures for cancer. Well, poor Royal Rife went through holy hell. I know he did. Uh, and as did so many, um, you know, uh, the, the struggle just, just even with chiropractic medicine up until about 1988 when they were attempting to destroy it for the 15th time. Uh, finally, the Supreme Court in Chicago certainly helped out. But this is this is really important. Um, I'd like to know more. I'd like to my, – my – Relative Dr. Galen T. Galen Hieronymus worked on machines like that, similar to it, and and that was one of the reasons why I, when Chris told me about it, I really wanted to know more about it. Thank you, and thank you for making it a part of this book. Now, of course, the book is called Transcending the Speed of Light: Consciousness, Quantum Physics, and the Fifth Dimension, the Fifth Five Dimension Universe. What is that fifth dimension? It's inner space. So, you know, uh, Einstein's got <clears throat> three physical dimensions, height, width, and depth, and time. So we live in a four-dimensional world. But what about inner space? What about the mind? Rudolf Steiner had a great idea. He called it counter space. So we, as you can go outside into infinity, you can also go into your mind into infinity. I've always believed that. I mean, And, and now that we have the Internet, it's the same concept. Mm -hmm. You go from one hyperlink to the next to the next to the next. You go into one infinite inner, inner virtual space, on and on, on. And so that's basically the idea. It's a very simple idea. But just as there is uh, outer space, there's inner space. Yeah. Now we get to, I, I just love this area on ether. You have so much important information here. But what is ether, and why was it forgotten by modern-day scientists? Um, this was a long learning process for me. And once I figured it out, I think it's very simple to understand, but it, it took me, I'd say, 10 or 15 years before I pieced this whole thing together. It really started with Tesla. I had, Tesla was the subject of my doctoral dissertation, and Stanley Krippner, as you mentioned, was my mentor as well. He is an unbelievable, amazing, amazing man, because my doctoral dissertation was 700 pages, and he read the whole thing, and he, and he ripped it apart like you know how he does, um, but he made it into a much better uh, work. And then it became the biography wizard, which uh, you know was doing really well. And out of the tons and tons of things that I that I read on Tesla, I read one sentence from one interview. That's how much he hid this aspect of his work. It was to Joseph Alsop, who was a New York Times uh, reporter, very famous reporter, ALSOP. And in the in interview, Tesla told him he said the sun is absorbing more energy than it's radiating. Now, that sounded ridiculous to me because the sun is very hot. How could it absorb more energy than it's radiating? It took me a few years, and I stuck it in Wizard. But I, I started to think about it, and I thought, well, if Tesla said it's so, let's assume that it is so. And then it began to dawn on me, of course it's so. Otherwise, the sun would burn out. It probably is absorbing more energy than it's radiating. And so that got me to rethink the ether, and I started to do a lot of research on the ether, and, and a lot of the, the, the chapter on the ether is just traditional study of the ether. Everyone believed in the ether in the 1800s, including uh, Fitzgerald and Lorenz, uh, and even Einstein believed in the ether. Um, but what, what happened was Einstein 
was looking at light as operating as a wave or as a particle. So when Michelson and Morley tried to measure the ether in the, in the late 1800s using mirrors, they were unable to detect the ether. So what Einstein said was, if light operates like a particle, it's going to travel from the sun to the earth like little bullets. It doesn't have to operate like a wave. Um, but he had a whole discussion with Lorenz. And Lorenz said, wait a second, the ether exists, and Einstein says, I know it exists. But what happened when he wrote his uh, theory of relativity in 1905, he emphasized the, the particle aspect of the, of, uh, the light and the photons. So the, literally, the entire 20th century has evolved with the idea that space is empty, that there's nothing in space, it's all empty, and that light travels like particles. Even though Einstein lectured um, at Leiden University on the ether, on the, uh, which is in the 1920s. So the first major biography of Einstein, written by Roland Clark in 1970, doesn't even mention the ether, doesn't even mention Einstein's, uh, I mean, it mentions ether, but doesn't mention that he lectured on, on it. Um, so uh, the upshot of it is, let's assume that the ether exists and that light operates like a wave. Now, one of the things Einstein wanted to do was he wanted to combine uh, gravity with electromagnetism. We talked about there are the sacred number four. The physicists have four forces to the universe. The strong nuclear force holds the nucleus together. Weak nuclear force holds the neutrons together. Um, electromagnetism holds molecules together, and gravity holds the stars and the planets together. So those are the four forces. He couldn't. Com he could combine three of them. The physicists today have combined three of them. They've been unable to combine gravity with the other three forces. They can't combine gravity with electromagnetism. I do it in this book. It's very simple. And here's how you do it. When you start to do research on the ether, remember Tesla said that the sun is absorbing more energy than it's radiating. This is actually the theory of gravity. What, it, what really is gravity? And the theory is actually very simple. The idea is, is that all matter, all electrons and protons, these little spinning particles, are absorbing ether all of the time. Mass absorbs ether all the time. That's what gives them electron spin. So when you jump up, the reason you land back on the Earth is not because of some magical uh, force called gravity. You're, you're, in, you're in the way of the influx. The Earth is absorbing energy all the time. All of matter is absorbing all the time. And that those uh, electrons and protons are spinning and as I explained in the book, they're actually spinning at 1.37 times the speed of light. They're spinning faster than the speed of light. In other words, they violate relativity. And they are converting that spin into electromagnetism. So the theory is very simple, that what gravity is, it's the absorption of ether by the mass of, let's say, the Earth. And during the absorption process, the electrons and the protons are spinning, and they're converting that energy into electromagnetism into the force that's holding the molecules together. So that's what Einstein was trying to do. He was, he was trying to combine gravity with electromagnetism. I just did it in two or three minutes. And the reason why he couldn't do it was because he had to abandon aspects of his theory of relativity. He was saying nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. But when you go into the history of, uh, of quantum physics, I read George Gamow's book. Gamow was like Einstein, one of the forefathers, the founding fathers of quantum physics. He said that in the 1920s, Goodsmith and Uhlenbeck measured electron spin, and they found that it was spinning at 1.37 times the speed of light. 
It was violating relativity, he said, but it wasn't violating anything in quantum mechanics. So what um, Dirac did was he said, let's not call it 1.37 times the speed of light. Let's call it the square root of negative 1. Let's make it an imaginary number. And once he made an imaginary number, uh, he was able to combine uh, Einstein's theory with quantum mechanics, and he got a Nobel Prize. But it, but the what we lost was the fact, the very fact that electrons are spinning faster than the speed of light. So what I think is that electrons are absorbing energy. This is the zero-point energy that, that uh, people like Tom Bearden talk about. It's the ether. The ether is vibrating in a rate faster than the speed of light, and it's being transformed by matter into what was what's called the physical universe. Oh, boy, well done. Boy, I don't know how you could do that. So it would take me an hour and a half. But, of course, I can't remember everything you've taught me, so that's a, one of the problems I have there. But there, there you, there's a, I really learned a lot from this book in regards to Einstein and his problems in his particular area. So, But ether is is linked then to to the speed of light? Yes, the idea is that the ether is living in a realm, uh, that there is a realm faster, a tachyonic realm faster than the speed of light. And the proof is, uh, Goodsmith and Uhlenbeck, who were two famous scientists, measured the speed of the spin of an electron, and it's 1.37 times the speed of light. So there's something spinning. All of matter is spinning faster than the speed of light, but this thing has been lost because Dirac got a Nobel Prize by converting it into an imaginary number. Um, so what the ether is, well, I, met, I read an amazing article, which is supposedly written by Tesla, but I don't believe it was. But what this article said was that the ether slows down light particles to the speed of light. In other words, there's a primary energy that's existing at a much more rapid rate than 186,000 miles a second. Mm-hmm. And that is the zero-point energy realm, which is very hard for us to detect uh, but it's it's the sub, you know, it's underneath uh, the physical matter, and uh, so it's it's uh, it's a tachyonic realm. And I in, a, in the book I'm arguing that our mind is is operating in the same realm that we're actually in, in this tachyonic realm. Also, you know, the, the cosmic rays. There's evidence to support that they move much faster than the speed of light. How much faster? Well, Tesla said there were 50 times, but uh, faster than the speed of light, cosmic rays. Um, but what I'm arguing for traditional physicists, if any traditional physicists are listening, is to go back to um, Gamow's book and look up Gutsmith and Uhlenbeck and tell me why uh, electrons are spinning 1.37 times the speed of light. How come you guys for the last you know, 75 years have ignored this? You know, we, they talk about the God particle. They just built a, a multi-billion dollar super collider in uh in Switzerland, and I don't believe they're going to find it because they're looking for something that's traveling faster than the speed of light. And what they're doing is they're, they're, they're colliding, they're, they're uh, smashing one atom into another atom or one particle into another. They're trying to find the secret to the universe by smashing things up. Well, we're um, smashing things up right now by and by having to stop you right here. Uh, there's some really important stuff here, guys, uh, especially when your comments concerning... Uh, why um, the mainstream scientific community is unwilling to to challenge Einstein. We'll be back with uh, Dr. Mark Seifer, Transcending the Speed of Light, Consciousness, Quantum Physics, and the Fifth Dimension Inner Traditions, MarkSeifer.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm the alleged Dr. Bob Hieronymus, a lowly Ph.D. hanging out in this part of the universe, and... 
there are times when I don't know which part I'm in. That's all there is to it, friends. And, of course, our executive producer and research assistant for about almost two decades now. Of course, our show is about 21 years old, is Laura Corden. Our engineer is Jake Bryant. And you're listening to a group that I used to love listening to for years, the Supreme Angels. The Supreme Angels. There they go. Of course, our guest is Dr. Mark Seifer, transcending the speed of light, consciousness, quantum physics, and the fifth dimension inner traditions. MarkSeifer.com. That's spelled M-A-R-C, Seifer.com. Yes, I, my, my boss told me not to spell it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, of course, we have just about 15 to 20 minutes to talk about some very important stuff. And I'd like to start with the link between ether, gravity, and electromagnetism. Okay, so basically what I was saying is very simple. Um, what what uh, ether is, is the medium between all the stars, and that the stars and the Earth, planets, they're absorbing ether all of the time. The reason that they're absorbing ether, I think, is to keep the elementary particles spinning. So electrons, we know that they spin. What keeps them spinning? On Guessing that, and I, and I, I have the, the I cite the sources obviously in the book, um, that they are absorbing ether all of the time and converting that ether into electromagnetism. So what we call gravity, really from the etheric point of view, is the absorption of ether by the elementary particles of the Earth. So that's really it. Well, the we talked a little bit about Einstein last segment and. You make the point that, well, so, sometimes, well, why might Einstein's theories be incomplete and perhaps built on some flawed data? Uh, but combining that with, actually, I should have said, why is mainstream scientific community unwilling to take on Einstein in this particular area? There's a few reasons. Einstein obviously was a, was a genius, but Einstein himself, and I, I go into great depth, I mean, I've studied Einstein's work, and I've studied the biographies and, and a lot of what he said. One of the things that Einstein said, which is in Roland Clark's uh, biography of Einstein, Einstein said that if the ether can be detected, then his theory of relativity is wrong. Now, when you read what the etheric uh, view of gravity is, it's what a g-force is. It's, a, it's actually very easy to detect the ether. If you're in a car and you stop short, you you you, you know you, you feel the force of that movement. You're absorbing ether, and that's what. And so there's a link between acceleration and gravity, which Einstein, in fact, did recognize. But what Einstein set himself up was, he said nothing could travel faster than the speed of light. But they were measuring electron spin. They were finding that electrons were indeed spinning faster than the speed of light. So what were they going to do? They didn't want to take Einstein on, so they changed. That spin to the square root of negative one, and uh, Dirac did this, and he combined uh, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity with quantum mechanics, and he got a Nobel Prize. So they've got this whole back, you know, this whole system giving a Nobel Prize to a guy for combining Einstein's theory with quantum mechanics. But but the loss was the fact that someone had measured electron spin; it was traveling faster than the speed of light. Here's where Spensky comes in. What Espensky says is that what Einstein realized, what Einstein had come across was actually a new dimension. And so one of the things I discuss is how you get from one dimension to the next dimension. 
and uh, it's, it's actually very simple. If, if a dot is the zero dimension and a dot moves out, you know, just moves out, it becomes a line. So a line is the first dimension. If a line moves perpendicular to itself, it creates a plane. That's the second dimension. So you have this concept of movement and at right angles. If the plane moves up at right angles, it creates a cube, which is the third dimension. And if a cube is moving through space, that's time. But, if, but you can draw a hypercube, which is a cube extending itself out. And so a hypercube, so there's actually two different dimensions which you could look at. One is time, the physical cube or the Earth moving through space. And another is that the space itself extending into what I'm calling inner space, or, which is you know the fifth dimension. Um, so what Einstein came across, he said nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. What Espensky is saying is, of course, something can travel faster than the speed of light. What, he, what Einstein came across was another dimension. And so that other dimension is, is the mental realm. One of the things I talk about in the book is the very equation E equals MC squared. What about C squared? What the heck is C squared? And I, I discuss, from the best of my ability, an attempt to try and explain what C squared is. It came from Leibniz's uh, um, equation for force. F equals MV squared. Force equals mass times velocity squared. And so I make a simple argument. If, if force equals mass times velocity squared, if velocity squared has a physical counterpart, then if E equals MC squared, then C squared's got to have a physical counterpart as well. And it's square to the, the physical dimension. Um, so that, that's another way of looking at um, what the next dimension is. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, let's accept what Einstein's saying, but, but let's realize that he's... he's, he's He's setting the stage for, for letting us understand that there is another dimension, and, that, and the, the, uh, the, the uh, threshold is the speed of light. Um, and my argument is that our mind is already operating in realms faster than the speed of light um, all the time. Let's, let's return to gravity just a second here. Gravity is, you say on page 107, universal compression of ether. Could, could you elaborate on this for me, please? Yeah, what I did was I think I have some contradictions in the book, and and I think that that's a contradiction to what I was saying, and I put it in because because that's what uh, I had read that, and uh, I see that as a contradiction to what I'm trying to argue. I don't totally understand what that means, um, but, but how I understand what gravity is, according to the etheric view, is that it's absorbing ether uh, all the time, so that all of matter is is sucking ether in. Is an influx all the time. So when you jump up, you're in the way of this influx. You fall back down. Now, that universal compression came from Tesla's work, and I put it in for historical reasons. There might be someone that could understand it, but uh, I didn't want to leave it out because he used that, that concept. Um, but I didn't, I, honestly, I just I don't understand it. What I do understand is, is the other way of looking at it. Either. Well, thank you. Thank you for explaining that because I was a little confused. Um, Dark matter or dark energy, there, there are books and upon books coming out on this now. Um, how might it be related to ether? Here's what I think. There's a, there's a few things I wanted to say about that. I wrote a, an article in, in 1979 called The Universe is a Hologram. To me, it's self-evident. And a lot of what I'm saying I think is self-evident, like, like the world life stuff. Let's say you take a Hubble telescope and put it on, you know, it's circling the Earth, and you you get a map of the universe. Suppose you move that Hubble telescope 
to circle uh, the planet Jupiter, you'll get a map of the universe. You could put the Hubble telescope any place in the universe, and you will get a map of the whole universe. Do you see what I mean? Yes, sir. Okay, so every point in space contains the intersecting light from every star. Wherever you go, you're going to see millions and millions and millions of stars. So that's a holographic uh, model for the universe. Um, so the universe is set up uh, on a holographic model, and at every point in space you have the intersecting light from every star. That, to me, is self-evident. Now, what is dark matter? I think what happened is it's semantics. They meant the term dark meant you couldn't see it. We can't see space. We can't. If I look out in, from here to the sun, I don't see the space in between the sun. I don't see the air. We don't call air dark. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. They made a mistake. They called it dark matter. It's like saying dark air because you can't see it. They should have said invisible matter. You see what I'm getting at? Yes, I do. Yes, I okay, do. so my argument is that what dark matter really is is light. It's light energy. Mm -hmm. And that the universe is filled with light. You can't go any place in the universe and not be at a point where you have the intersecting light from every star in the universe. I think it's self-evident. So what I'm saying dark matter is it's really light energy. And, and another thing I'm saying is that Planck's constant uh, is a little quantum of energy. I'm saying that photons have mass. So they're saying, well, the missing matter. Yeah, all the photons that have been produced for you know, 14 billion years that's spreading out all over the universe has a teeny bit of, of, of weight to it. And that's what the missing energy is. So it's a semantic problem. They should have called it light energy mm -hmm. instead of dark energy. They meant invisible energy. Um, so what I think it is, it's, it's simply light. Well, how might, you know, Tesla, an extraordinary soul, There, you mentioned that one of the earlier uh, theories or some people feeling that he came from another planet. But how might have Tesla developed super-sensitive abilities? I think that this is an interesting idea, this concept of an avatar and, and revelation. Um, I, I believe that there are higher states of consciousness. And, I, and as you state, stated in the beginning of your show, we're not alone. We cannot be the smartest thing in the universe. There has to be other intelligences more intelligent than us. And we are, in a sense, instruments of higher intelligent forces. What Gurdjieff talks about it. What's the point of humans? And one of the points is to help you know, the cosmos evolve. So certain people do things, and they are actually instruments of a higher purpose. I think uh, Kubrick, when he made you know, 2001 uh, with Arthur Clarke, it served a higher purpose. I also think uh, Spielberg, he doesn't realize it, but E.T., is a, is a revelation. It's like a biblical tale. It's, it's energy from a higher state. And there are certain people, I put Edison right up there with Tesla, but, but these people come to the earth and they are instruments of, of higher powers. What Tesla saw himself, which is so interesting, he didn't see himself as an inventor. He saw himself as a discoverer. And I'll give you an example. We could have never invented the airplane if birds didn't fly. All of our inventions come from studying nature, studying a higher conscious force, which is the producer of life. So some people are more in touch with, with expressing this higher uh, process, and sometimes it can be through artistic achievement, and in Tesla's case, it was through uh, creative invention. So that's really the idea. So the idea of him being, you know, uh, 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 coming from another planet, I think in some spiritual sense, in a way he was. He was, a, he was tapped into this higher energy, 
and uh, he was expressing it on the earth, and we needed him at that time. Well, it's too bad that uh, most of his, some of the most important his work has, has not been followed through, and so much of his work has been destroyed as well. But that seems to be the way of of the status quo. And boy, we heard, I I couldn't believe what we heard just before uh, the end of last hour, saying that something was wrong with the status quo or. Let's not follow that. I've forgotten exactly what it was years ago. I don't think I'd ever would have heard that on the radio. Uh, how might a person's mind be a microcosm of the universe? Well, I think that what is consciousness? I like the idea of mandala. And when Moses you know, sees the burning bush, uh, which is God, God tells Moses, his name, I am that I am. So the name of God is I am. And from Rudolf, Rudolf Steiner's work, he gets into the very word I. I can say you did this, or Bob did that, or this fellow did that, or that guy did that, but I can't say I for you. I could say Bob did this, or you did this, but I can't say I did this, meaning it's you. So I is a very special word, but I gives you an identity with the great I am in the sky. We're all linked to, to, to the Godhead, to the I Am. So I like the model of a mandala with God in the center, the big I Am in the center, and we're all spokes off the wheel. So when they ask Jesus, are you the Son of God? He says, I am. As we all are. We are all sons or daughters of God. We're all chips off the old block. So I think my consciousness and your consciousness, everybody's consciousness, is a little piece, is a little piece of the giant consciousness. We each have our own what Leibniz called the monad. And uh, so that, I think, is the link, why we're a microcosm of the, of the macrocosm, meaning the conscious force that created all this. Uh, we each have a piece of, a little chip of that. Well, also, there's a, oh gosh, there's so many other sections in this book we haven't touched, but would you please, for our final question, discuss Darwin's theory of random mutation versus the Aristotelian, Aristotelian view that the universe is purposeful. What does, and also, what does the word teleology mean? Well, Darwin said that uh, life evolved through a chance mutation and survival of the fittest. So the giraffe with the longer necks survive, and the ones with the shorter necks die out. In the case of the cheater, the slow cheaters die out, and the fast ones survive. But it's all based on chance. What Darwin is missing is the alarm fatale, is the vital life force inside that forces this giraffe to want to have a longer neck or to cheat it to run faster. The word teleology means that the end is implied in the beginning, and Aristotle talks about this. So if we have an acorn, already inside that acorn is a 40-foot oak tree at some point in the future. It's already built into the acorn. And so what Darwin is missing is that built inside of every one of us is, all, is a plan for the distant future. So evolution was what Gurdjieff would be called, he's calling it involution, that there's help from above. So it's not just Darwin's theory that we are becoming more and more complex trying to adapt to uh, the environment, but there's also help from above. There's an inner force propelling us forward, and that's what's missing from Darwin's theory, the inner force, uh, the directionality, first cause, the conscious force that created it all. Well, Mark, is there anything that we haven't covered? There's a lot we haven't covered, but that you would like to relate in the few minutes we have left. I would like to say that 
that I end the book, you know, with a, a lot of discussion of astrology. I do uh, Bill Clinton's uh, chart. I have uh, Einstein's chart, uh, Adolf Hitler's chart, uh, and Freud's chart. And one of the things I, I'm making an argument for is if Johann Kepler, if Isaac Newton, if Galileo, Copernicus, if all these great people studied astrology, why are we so arrogant to think that they were, you know, they were brilliant in this one realm, but they were dumb in this other realm? Maybe there really is something to astrology. And I talk about Gachlin's book, Cosmic Clocks, where he did 20,000 horoscopes, and he found out that, that there is a link between Mars and, and, and you know, warriors and, and Jupiter and politicians and all of this, that, that there's something there. But what is he really saying? We are a product of uh, the solar system, and that that solar system is imbued in us. Anybody with a telescope, that's what I would like to tell your listeners, is if they've never seen Saturn with a, through a telescope or Jupiter with a telescope, you have to do this. You just have to do this. And you'll see how close they really are. You can see the moons of, of Jupiter. You can see the ring of Saturn, and it, it's so close. I mean, So it is all influencing us. So I would like to make a, a case that we should rethink about astrology in, in the sense that we are a product of this conscious universe. And there, and there, there are some big secrets there, and we had some great giants that studied it in our past, and we should re be respectful of them. Well, I agree, especially Michael, Mr. Gokrillin, and and some of the tragic ends of so many individuals that uh, discussed astrology, especially within the, gosh, what they, I, I'm trying to, did, did he commit suicide? I don't know. Was it, was but look it what I don't know, but look what they did to Nancy Reagan, you know? Oh, yes, yes, uh, uh, in, indeed. Uh, but uh, the reason why I... And especially felt poorly for the work of Gulkrillin because I, they never. Most of the people that tore it apart obviously didn't read his work, didn't understand his work. Yeah. And this happens so many times in so many areas that uh, the, it's, it seems like within academia sometimes there's a good deal of fear uh, concerning things that they know very little about but will attack. You know, I have a quote in the book. I have the guy's name, but I can't think of his name. But it was, a wise man follows the stars, a fool is ruled by them. There is a tremendous amount of wisdom in that statement. I agree. Well, thank you for joining us, Mark. The book is Transcending the Speed of Light, Consciousness, Quantum Physics, and the Fifth Dimension. Uh, you remember the Fifth Dimension as a group? Yes, I love that song. Wouldn't they something? Yeah. And, and I am a, I'm an Aquarian. Too. You're an Aquarian. No wonder you'd like that song. Uh, by the way, did you go to Woodstock? Yes, I did. Did you have a good time? It was a mind-blowing experience. <laughs> I bet you it was. A life-changing experience. Thank you very much, Mark, for joining us. I hope you can join us again sometime. Thank you. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus & Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. And I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus. And remember to sit up straight.